0: Microphone check, one, two, three, city, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check, good, sounds good, one, two, three, rolling and
1: get in the zone of making a film it's like a fever overtakes you where it's all you can think about is like what am I missing right now what should I be filming right now what question should I ask right now what question should I not ask right now that fever that overtakes you that all it becomes an all-consuming thing that doesn't let you sleep at night that is what it you need to make a film you don't need these big awards even though they're incredibly wonderful what you need is this madness that will
0: keep you hungry to find the story hello and welcome to the documentary life this is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life I am your host Chris G Parkhurst and this is episode number 139 And it is brought to you by barong films proud creators of documentary film and the documentary life podcast i think that it was right around 1997 when i stopped religiously watching the academy awards ever since i was about 14 years old i had watched the entirety of just about every academy awards event but somewhere around the mid 90s i began to lose interest in the awards show it started to feel a little contrived at times and a bit overboard for my taste. I started to realize that it was about people and attended by people that I most likely would never know. This was well before I'd even gotten into the industry when filmmaking still seemed like a total pipe dream to me. But I think what really started me down the road of dismay about the Academy Awards was that people that I always thought should win Best Director or Best Actor or Best Screenplay never seemed to win and that it was the favorites or most obvious choices that always took home the big prizes. I think that the last straw was when Emily Watson didn't win the actress in a leading role award in 97 for her performance in Breaking the Waves, which for my money to this day is still one of the most amazing performances I have ever seen in cinema. I mean, sure, the Oscar winner that year, Frances McDormand in Fargo, was really nice too, but come on, people. And so much like I did with baseball in 94 when it went on strike and my beloved Montreal Expos owned the best record in baseball at the time when I swore off baseball for about two decades, I stopped paying attention to the Academy Awards for many years after Sweet Emily Watson was robbed of her rightful Oscar. And it wasn't until the past decade or so that I began to pay attention again. And even so, I'm not actually watching the entire awards show, like ever. I'm not sitting down with friends and sharing wine and foods while we spend nearly four hours in front of the television to finally get to the Best Picture Award. Far from it. Nowadays, I usually only last about an hour into the event. Because inevitably, at this point, the only awards that I truly care about have been given out. Best Documentary Feature and Documentary Short Subject. Once those have been handed out, I can safely tune out and spend the rest of my evening doing something constructive, oftentimes feeling a little more inspired to work on whatever my current documentary project is at the time. And so it was that documentary was what eventually brought me back around to the Academy Awards. And for the record, I never really came back around to baseball. I wonder, have you ever considered the history of documentary in the Academy Awards? Did you know that it wasn't until 1941 that the first Academy Award for Documentary Feature was handed out? That's 12 years after the awards began, which was in 1929. Those first awards were referred to as Special Awards, and they were given out to the documentaries Kukan and Target for Tonight. Kukan was a documentary about the Chinese resistance to the Japanese aggression during the beginnings of World War II. Apparently, in 2016, there was a documentary called Finding Kukan, which was about investigating the story of Chinese-Hawaiian Li Lingai, the female co-producer of the film. Wikipedia tells me that Finding Kukan had a budget of $60 million, which confirms to me that I really shouldn't trust the Wikipedias. $60 million for a documentary? Not sure about that. A lot of the films that were nominated and won Academy Awards in the 1940s, not surprisingly, were about World War II and oftentimes were produced by United States Armed Forces. I was happy to see that in 1951 at the 24th Academy Awards, one of my all-time heroes, explorer Thor Heyerdahl won a Best Documentary Award for his filming of his own expedition from Peru to Polynesia in a balsa wood raft in the documentary film Contiki. And that 20 years later, the year of my birth, another documentary that involved old Thor was nominated for an Academy Award. The Raw Expeditions, which told the story of Hiredal's attempt to cross the Atlantic on papyrus boats. Yeah, that Thor guy was pretty freaking cool. Three years later, a documentary that greatly influenced me and my work won the Oscar for Best Documentary. It was Peter Davis's Hearts and Minds, a film about the Vietnam War. It was a remarkable piece of film, not only because no one would try and tackle the Vietnam conflict in cinema or literature until many years after that, at least no one in America would, but also because the film nearly never happened when one of its subjects, National Security Advisor Walter Rostow, issued a temporary restraining order on the film, stating that it was somewhat misleading and quote-unquote not representative, that he had not been given the opportunity to approve the results of his interview. When Columbia Pictures refused to distribute the film, the producers were forced to purchase back the rights from Columbia to release the film themselves, which they did for one week in Los Angeles, which then made it eligible for consideration in the 1974 Academy Awards. Did you know that the finalists for Best Documentary Feature are selected by the documentary branch and that it is based on a preliminary ballot? A second preferential ballot is what determines the five nominees. For this past year's Oscars, there were 15 documentaries that were shortlisted. This came from the 159 films that were submitted in the category. And speaking of shortchanged, I mean shortlisted, let's talk about notable documentaries that were not nominated for Best Documentary Feature. This is always a fun debate to have. Probably the most notable of all of these, and one that so, so many people talk about as being instrumental to their own documentary lives, comes from someone whom we've had on the show twice. I'm talking about none other than Steve James. And of course, I'm talking about his documentary directorial debut, Hoop Dreams. The controversy over this film not being included in the Academy Award nominees has become documentary legend at this point. Public outcry for its exclusion from the awards led to a revised nomination process in the category. But what most don't remember is that Hoop Dreams is only the second documentary feature to ever be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Film Editing. Truth be told, I didn't even know this. I discovered this upon my researching for this segment. The other films that year that were nominated for this award? Forrest Gump, which won the award, Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, and Speed. I gotta get on that bus. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I guess that none of those films was editing down 250 hours of footage. But I can say with certainty that they were all editing with scripts. Yeah, nonetheless, very cool for the Hoop Dreams people. Incidentally, the Woodstock documentary was the first and only other documentary to receive a nomination for Best Film Editing. Other notable documentaries that weren't nominated for Best Documentary Feature. The Males' brothers have three pretty monumental documentaries that surprisingly somehow didn't make the Academy Cut. Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and Grey Gardens. Crazy, right? You'd think at least one of those would have gotten in there. Neither of Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven or The Thin Blue Line were nominated. Ari Fulman's Waltz with Bashir was the first documentary and first animated film to be nominated for Best International Feature Film, although interestingly, it was left off of the Best Documentary Feature. The nine hours long and 11 years in the making film Shoah of interviews with survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators during visits to Holocaust sites surprisingly also did not manage to get a nomination. Or how about Michael Moore's debut documentary feature Roger and Me, which brought a pretty unique way of storytelling to an otherwise, at the time, fairly dry and subjective way of making documentaries? Nope. Didn't get in. Herzog's Grizzly Man didn't get a nomination. But his Encounters at the End of the World, a film that doesn't even make a top 10 Herzog documentaries cut for me, somehow did get the nod. It's hard for my sometimes cynical mind not to wonder if this wasn't a right-of-a-wrong or a, a we're-sorry-for-not-having-earlier-recognized-your-brilliance-as-a-filmmaker kind of nomination. I kind of feel the same way about Steve James's Abacus Small Enough to jail. An excellent film, but I have a feeling that it's his films like Hoop Dreams or Stevie that he'll be best known for. So there's a little Academy Awards trivia for you. I'm not sure I've ever done a segment like that before. I mean, I even had to actually do a little research for that. I know, scary, isn't it? But it seemed an appropriate way to bring on today's documentary industry guest, Steven Bognar. He and his wife, Julia Reichert, this year won the Academy Award for their documentary feature, American Factory, a film about Chinese company Fuyao's factory in Moraine, Ohio, which occupied the space once filled by the American General Motors plant. I do want to make a quick mention before we get to that wonderful discussion. This conversation was recorded months ago, actually not long after COVID-19 really was making its way around the US. I say this because a couple of times early on in the conversation, COVID will be mentioned, but a lot has happened regarding COVID since that time. Right then, let's get to that conversation in a minute or two. It's coming up next, right here, right now, on The Documentary Life. There are plenty of places online to learn how to do things like split the audio signals coming into your camera, or how to animate some of your still photos, or get some great tips on lighting your interview, many blogs, YouTube videos, and of course podcasts, where you can quickly grab an answer to a tech-related question. But what if there was one place where you could learn from beginning to end how to make a documentary film and how to become a doc filmmaker, how to raise money and build an audience for your doc, how to form strategic partnerships and launch your doc out into the world, and perhaps even, if you can imagine, make some money from it? Well, there is such a place, and it's called The Documentary Academy. Steph and I took two years to build out this comprehensive resource that takes you step-by-step from story creation and pre-production all the way to post-production, launch, and distribution. The Academy takes you through your doc filmmaking journey as your most confident, active, strategic, creative, focused, and articulate self. It is a step-by-step guide to empowerment in the documentary filmmaking world. We know what we have in the Documentary Academy. Now it's up to you to discover what you have as a doc filmmaker do that today by heading over to the documentarylife.com/academy Steven Bognar is an independent filmmaker and media arts educator whose films focus on regional identity, the Midwestern landscape, and the significance of photographic images. His films include A Line in the House, Gravel, Picture Day, Personal Belongings, Welcome to Censornati*. And of course, American Factory, winner of this year's Academy Award for Best Documentary. Bognar's work has been screened at the Sundance Film Festival in South by Southwest and has aired on PBS, the independent film channel, and Deep Dish Television. His films have also shown on HBO and Netflix. He is a contributor to Independent Film and Video Monthly and has taught at Antioch College and in Ohio Public Schools. Bognar's film, American Factory, was the first to be produced by Higher Ground Productions, a film company founded by the Obamas and is currently streaming on Netflix. First and foremost, Stephen, a huge warm welcome to the program. It's very exciting to have you joining us today on The Documentary Life.
1: Thank you, Chris. No, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for doing this podcast.
0: Stephen, often what we do at the outset, to kind of give us some context on our filmmakers, we'd love to hear a little bit about the journey of how you came to documentary film.
1: You know, like a lot of people my age, I'm 56, uh, like a lot of kids my age, uh, I grew up in the 70s, and I had a couple of major influences. One was punk rock music. Uh, (laughs) I was a kid in the late 70s, an adolescent and uh, I discovered, I'm not musical in, in any way, but I discovered sort of the joy of just a spontaneous creation that I, I saw in all these punk rock bands, yeah. a lot of them coming out of England, bands like The Clash were hugely influential on me but then another major influence uh from from when i was even younger was uh and it's a cliche to say it but it's also the truth which is uh, star wars when i was 14 years old (laughs) i saw star wars in a huge movie theater and i was sort of so blown away that the confluence of of that film's impact on um my imagination and the the sort of the joy and, uh, and and liberation of making art, making stuff with with my friends, which I saw in all the punk rock bands. Uh, they they fueled me and my friends to to pick up uh, movie cameras, mm-hmm. little Super Eight and regular eight movie cameras. And in the late nineteen seventies, we instead of having a punk rock band, we had a, like a little movie making group
0: collective, and nice. we made
1: really awful little stupid (laughs) movies but they were full of joy you know i I really came to love filmmaking as a as a thing to do and at the time they were all scripted or experimental things or animated things and it was a few years later i was in college and i was taking a photography class uh, and doing a lot of black and white photography, street photography. That was the assignment. Yeah. And I was told to go to the the, the the library and look at photo books. And I, I came upon this book by Robert Frank, the, the late, great Robert mm-hmm. Frank, a photographer who died last year, mm-hmm. who came out with a book in the late 1950s called The Americans. Mm-hmm. And that book changed my life. That book which is 88 photographs culled from over 23, 24,000 pictures that he took across several years of traversing America. That book of 88 photos is a landmark work of documentary. You know, it, it is sort of is both a poem and it's journalism all at once. It's the photos are incredibly lyrical and they're really hard hitting and gritty. And that that kind of intersection of trying to be truthful about the world to sort of say things about the world as the world really is and all its harshness but also finding moments of lyricism and finding moments of beauty uh, that just hit me like a ton of bricks mm. and that's that made me want to be a documentarian it, it really taught it really told me in a very stark way that the real world, real life is so much more rich and complex and and contrary than anything I could ever like write in my little notebooks.
0: Something I definitely wanted to, to talk with you about is that a number of your films obviously have centered around Ohio. And I'm curious if this was very much a conscious decision, and if so, when that happened, and then on a greater context, why you maybe think it's important that doc filmmakers maybe stay local with their doc films.
1: So a lot of my films have centered... Around or been connected to the Midwest and specifically Ohio, yeah. but it wasn't a plan. Hmm. When I got out of college, I moved to New York, uh, like many other people do, and I was going to try to break into the film world and the doc world. And I, you know, I, I had jobs, I had different types of jobs, and I was always trying to get freelance work. Uh, and I, you know, it took me months to to get even really kind of not very good gigs but um yeah it, it was i was I, I eventually i knew i wanted to make my own films to to direct and shoot and make and edit my own films but i i realized i needed to sort of pay the rent and i wanted to work in in i wanted to pay the rent by working in documentary because i also knew that i would be learning but i was in new york on and off for like two years and i was so struggling to just pay the rent yeah Around that time, my my dad announced that he was going to be going back to Hungary, where he had escaped from in 1956, mm. uh, after the failed uprising against the Soviet Union. And he was going to go back in 1986 to uh, commemorate that revolution. Mm. And that's what started my film, Personal Belongings. Yeah. Uh, and I realized, once I was making that film, my dad lived in Ohio, that the whole, my whole dream of like getting enough freelance work in New York to pay the rent so that I could make my own films—that was just a practical unreality. You know, it wasn't going to happen. And that it was so much cheaper to live in Ohio. Right. And then the fact that I was the story I was pursuing about my dad also needed me to be in Ohio. It just—it just made sense for me to move back. Hmm. Uh, in the years since, yeah, you know, I've made films that are. Geographically specific to Ohio and then films that where geography sort of irrelevant, you know, hopefully they're they're more universal Right, but the the fact is that living in Dayton, Ohio has been an incredible uh, Support for all the crazy ideas that I've had or that me and Julia have had To make films because the films we make, you know They sometimes take years and years to make personal belongings took nine years to make Our film, A Lion in the House, which I made with my partner, Julia Reichert, mm. that film took 10 years to make. American Factory took four years to make. Yeah. And we make these kind of films where a deep immersion is required and you have to be able to show up every day and film every day and work on it every day. And so it really makes a difference to live in a community that where you have a lot of support and honestly, where it's cheaper. You know the this, the cost of living in Dayton, Ohio, is way less than in New York City. Right. And then as time went on, I just you know I, I, I my roots got deeper here, and of course now I've got family older and younger than me that are here, yeah. and I'm I'm very well established here. And even more so, more important, this Julia and I have realized that like over the, over time, a lot of the stories we want to tell are very much Midwestern stories, uh-huh. like our film The Last Truck or its follow-up, the film, American Factory.
0: This is a historic project that is going to help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. 他抓不了他必宰,他什麼現什麼缺欠。We 他在, hope someday to get this good. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to the look and feel of American Factory because that's something that jumps out pretty quickly to to a lot of people who will watch this is in many ways, uh, in many ways, the cinematography itself is very, very beautiful. And I'm curious, what your approach to the overall look and feel of American factory was and what those discussions were, were like between you and Julia.
1: Well, thank you for saying that it matters to us a lot. The, we, we care a lot about, even yeah. though we we make ostensibly like social issue films or films that deal with, you know, big tectonic plates shifting in the world. Yeah. We always want the films to be cinematic and to be beautiful and to be, uh, well, you know, the craft, of, ed, of the editing, the craft of the cinematography, of the sound design, of the score, all that matters hugely to us, yeah. as it would if we were fiction filmmakers. Yeah. And I, I think one of the great breakthroughs of the last you know, 10, 15 years in documentary and in the consciousness of the world is that documentaries are works of cinema, right. first and foremost, right. and they should use the toolbox of cinema to tell their stories. And we always tr- strive to do that. Uh, so when we were... When we were getting ready to, in the early days of making American Factory, uh, and having made our earlier film, The Last Truck, a couple things we really talked about, or things that mattered to Julia and, and I, was first and foremost that working people be be filmed and evoked in a way that gave that had dignity and and gave them respect. Right. That uh, we wanted to frame people and light people. Or find the light mm. that would give people a level of, of beauty, uh, inherent beauty and glamour, even if they're working in a dusty, dirty uh, factory environment. But Eric, Aubrey, Jeff, Julia, and I would talk about how to frame people, what what kind of lens to use. Um, you know, we 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 opted to go for slightly often, even though it's a often a handheld, cinema verite film. Mm. We realized that we needed when people were doing their jobs. The repetitive nature of yeah. their jobs allowed us to really figure out the best angle oh, and yeah. the best light oh, because yeah. the person's doing something again and again and again, and you can film it from twenty-seven different angles, <laughs> right? And you, but we said, like, look, go more telephoto because it's a little more like a movie star yeah. kind of angle, yeah. uh, even though it's harder to hold steady, you know, and it's harder to hold focus. But the, the the reality is if if you're filming someone doing a routine piece of labor 40 times, <laughs> you might and you're trying to rack focus, you might miss the focus rack 20, 30 times. Right. But if you get it a few times, <laughs> then you've got a really beautiful moment that is very that is slightly telephoto and that looks really beautiful. We were also helped tremendously in the making of American Factory by the inherent lighting inside that. Plant. Oh, and this yeah. is just oh, yeah. good you luck tell. that we, yeah, we're fortunate to have. Yeah. So it's a glass factory, yeah. as, as as you know, if you've seen the movie. And when you work in a glass factory, there's a lot of banks of fluorescent lights that are on the side. Because people need to hold up windshields between their eyes and this bank of fluorescent lights so they can inspect the glass. Yeah. They have to inspect each windshield. And because people are holding up these these pieces of glass they are lit from the side and they're lit. It's like a bank of soft light as if, (laughs) you know, they're in front of a makeup mirror or something. And then the light falls off dramatically and you've got a lot of shadow. And that led to some really beautiful lighting environments where people at work, even though they're sweating and it's really hot in there and it's dangerous and it's loud. They looked really cool. You know, it looked beautiful
0: as if we had lit it. Talk a little bit about your your gear approach. And what I mean by that is we often talk in the show, obviously, as doc filmmakers, the impact that we have uh, in the moments and also the impact that we have with the gear that we bring into those moments. Obviously, I'm assuming you guys were very intentional about the types of gear that you brought in and the, and, and the amount of crew. Talk a little bit about that, uh, that approach and what you did to kind of minimize the impact that you guys were having as doc filmmakers.
1: We started with a boom pole. Yeah. We started by recording sounds separate from picture. Ah, at the very right. beginning, we we didn't have uh, sort of the new this new you know this was early 2015, yeah. and we didn't have the budget. We had no funding at first for over a year, wow. and we were just funding it ourselves. So we did not have like the C100 Mark II that we <laughs> eventually got, or the <laughs> C300 that our nephew uh, Jeff Reichert brought, brought to, to, to the show. Yeah. So what we did is we were filming often early on with a Canon 5D or a Sony A7S, Mm. which are both beautiful DSLR cameras that can do high-def video. And we would record sound separate in going into either a Zoom recorder or a 744T audio recorder. And we would put a lav on one person, but then we'd have a boom pole going. And we realized quite early on that the boom pole was – too distracting Mm. and dangerous because we're on a we're on a volatile factory floor where both people and and machines forklifts uh pallet jacks are things are in motion (laughs) all kinds of stuff are in motion and it was often a construction site in that early period of time as well and we just felt like the boom was um not going to serve us well even though it was getting us good sound it was not a smart thing to do and we we really switched our focus to lavalier mics yeah and to um asking people again and again and again hey could you wear a lav could you wear a lav the um the factory was so loud that if you weren't booming and the boom wasn't right near someone it it was not very good sound at all wow. but if a person had a lavalier on then they could suddenly you know turn and walk different direction and you would still have really good sound and we didn't need to um, obstruct them or get in their way with our damn boom pole (laughs) the footprint of the cameras that having a small footprint mattered to us I mean those those DSLRs in the early days were were great in some ways Uh, we were really happy though when we got a we finally had enough money to buy a a C100 mark 2 because that meant we could run lavaliers directly into, yeah. into the camera and we weren't having to sync it up later <laughs> right. uh, by having double system sound. One thing we started realizing is when we would film um, meetings, which we filmed a lot of, as you see in the movie, yeah. we would film with both multiple cameras and multiple audio recorders. So we would film – you can see the audio recorders in the movie on the table sometimes. Yeah, There's a lot of – um, yeah. When you see meetings happening, passionate meetings or or calm meetings uh, around the table and people are either getting mad or complaining, whether it's the Chinese or the Americans, if you look on the shot and look on the table, you'll probably see one or two of our Zoom recorders. Yeah. Because yeah. we started traveling with two and then even later three Zoom recorders and we would put them on the table in strategic places yeah. just to catch people's sound. Even though we would asked one or two people to wear lavaliers, the people we sort of guessed would speak the most or who had the most uh, dramatic stakes in that particular meeting. But we also knew other people would speak, and we knew we were not going to boom. So we would place the Zoom audio recorders, which are, you know, $250, I think, uh, little recorders with great audio quality. That's right. We'd put them on the tables. Uh, set the level, lock them yeah. so they wouldn't accidentally get turned off, put them in lock mode. Yeah. And then um we'd suddenly have like 8 10 tracks of audio from the meeting. Brilliant. It made for a lot more work um, in post production, <laughs> but it got us crucial lines yeah. from crucial people who we would never have guessed were going to speak up, you know. If you if if, if there we film meetings with 20 people in a room around this big long table, And if you had asked me who's going to speak or who's not going to speak, I was always wrong. But the Zoom audio recorders were like a catch-all that would often get far better sound than – you know, the mic on top of the camera or, or a lav that some other person was wearing.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that geekiness. We always, uh, embrace and endorse such geekiness. Yeah. And but, I yeah. say,
1: and Chris, let me say this. I, I you know, I, I, it's not a secret, but I, I, I hope everyone knows or remembers this, but sound in documentary matter <laughs> so much more than picture. Uh, an audience will forgive a shaky out of focus shot. Oh my God. If, it's got authenticity. In a way, it it, it has more authenticity if it's shaky or out of focus or struggling (laughs) to find its focus. But sound, if the sound is bad, it's amateur night. It's suddenly it's Uncle Uncle Charlie's backyard barbecue video and (laughs) it's not acceptable. You've gotta have good sound. And that means lavaliers and that means Uh, you know, multiple mics and multiple tracks. And that's, we work really hard on getting good sound.
0: It's probably one of the top three things I recommend in the, I don't know, 125 shows at the time of this recording that we've done. I'm just always, always stressing how critical sound is. And at the end of the day, sound over video. Talk about a little bit now of the approach with Fuyao. How did you bring the concept to them and how did you ultimately get them on board to allow you guys to bring your cameras in? What was that like?
1: Well, they actually, they came to us. It was a really interesting way that this film started. You know, we had made this earlier film called The Last Truck, yeah. Closing of a GM Plant, which is an HBO film and it's still available to see on HBO Go or HBO Now. Yeah. Uh, it's a 40-minute short about the closing of that same factory 10 years ago, or now – actually, now it's 12 years ago. And when Fuyao came to Dayton in 2014, they started talking with the local business community about how historic this was going to be. And the the local folks – well, someone said along the way, hey, someone should document this. This is going to be really big and important. You're bringing life back to this dead factory that meant so much to so many people Mm -hmm. and there's huge symbolic symbolic value to to doing that and so the idea of having a documentary made was started being kicked around and the local business community uh specifically two two gentlemen uh a guy named jeff hoagland and a guy named jp nassif they came to us to Mm -hmm. me and julia and said you know this this company fuya ramping up it's going to be amazing and they were interested in, like, hiring you to do a documentary. Julia and I uh, met with them, went with, met with Jeff, and we said, well, we, we don't want to be hired. That's not what we're we would not be interested in doing that. Oh, but wow. if Fuyao gives us, um, f- like, real access, but it's our film, we own it, we have editorial control over it, we take zero money from the company, mm. it's a truly independent film – and yet you still let us in, you still give us real access, then we would do it. And the company thought about it and specifically the chairman thought about it. And ultimately he said, let's do it, you wow. know, and which was, if you think about it, it's quite remarkable oh. uh, that he he was willing to say, I'm, I, I don't have control over this, but I'm going to let these cameras into my factory yeah. as we are starting up as, as, you know, knowing things would go wrong. Yeah. And uh, he took a real leap of faith that we would make a good film and that um, we wouldn't do a hatchet job yeah. or, you know, we weren't muck, we weren't going to be muckrakers. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was it was great. And, and even as things got difficult in the years that followed, mm-hmm. he never took back that openness and that commitment to let us tell a true story.
0: I would say it was bold on your guys's part as well. And what I mean by that, Stephen, is. This is the first time I heard I have heard that they had actually approached you initially to produce something and and I, th- I you know I think that there are a lot of us filmmakers who would have simply jumped on board that and said yes great you're going to fund this there's a there's the, I can make some money as a doc filmmaker sounds great what was it for you guys that that obviously there was something strong enough and and my guess is it has something to do obviously with the prior film but really at the end of the day you did have someone come to you with a potential paid gig, right? They, they came to you with a, a paid gig and you decided to forgo funding and produce this yourself. What was it yeah. that really allowed you to do, to do that for you guys?
1: How do I say it? It's like if, if it had been a, a funded film, the world would never see it. It becomes an industrial film mm. for the company. And that's true for any, any company. If, um, you know, if, if you're hired by an entity to make a film about that entity, then it's it's like it just it, it limits the life of the film, the exposure of the film, because, yeah. you know, all the broadcasters won't take it. They know it's a sponsored movie. Right. And we weren't in a we were lucky that we weren't in a position where we had to make money. Right. We were not mm. desperate for uh, money. We were both had teaching jobs and we were able to support ourselves. And so in, independence at that point, this is 20, you know 2015. Yeah. The, that level of independence really just matters to us more than the money, right. and we were intrigued by the idea, but we were not intrigued by, by the idea of making an industrial movie, you yeah. know, um, or a commercial, yeah, like a long, long-form commercial for the, for the company.
0: share with us some of the cultural differences that you were dealing with, maybe even on a day-to-day basis in terms of filming with Americans and filming the Chinese nationals.
1: There were lots of differences. It hits you like a ton of bricks that the language gap is going to be a real barrier between you and your ability to connect Mm -hmm. with people who are allowing you to film them. And at first, we thought, well, our point of view is going to be the blue collar Americans who are excited to have jobs again. Mm. But pretty quickly, you know, we're surrounded by, we're working with and filming with Americans, but we're also working with and filming with uh, Chinese folks. But we couldn't talk to them. Mm. And we just immediately felt like this is going to be a problem. And we could see that they were going through big things you know there were several (laughs) bilingual folks uh one in particular who became a great advisor to us as we made the film was rebecca ruan O'Shaughnessy. she Mm -hmm. she was the chief legal counsel at the company and she she grew she was born and uh into her early adolescence lived in china and then she moved to new york so Mm -hmm. like roughly half her life was in china and half her life was in america and she's culturally and linguistically Totally bilingual. uh, And she would tell us about how these Chinese workers are living in small apartments, like four men without much furniture. And they each have families back in China and they have kids back home. And they don't get to see these kids for like a year or two years. And they miss their partners or their wives. And it was, we just started realizing, oh my Lord, this is a huge part of this story. And we've got to be able to tell it, oh, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. But we also realize we, we can't. And that and, – and so – you know, this is months and months into filming, we realized we've got to get Chinese filmmakers to collaborate with. Mm -hmm. And, and that led to us eventually, uh, connecting with Chen Zhang and Mijia Li, Mm -hmm. who are the two co-producers of the film, who are both younger Chinese filmmakers. They, they, once they came on board, they started coming to Ohio one or both of them every month for the remainder of filming. Uh And we were in China with them for all the all the all the china filming and they were totally essential to us being able to tell the story because they built relationships with folks like wong he the the chinese character in the film who talks about he's he's memorable in that he's smoking the cigarettes after a long day at work <laughs> and he's sitting there in his apartment alone and uh he talks about missing his kids and he talks about crying for the first time he hasn't cried in years since he was a teenager but he cried when he came to ohio because it was he was so lonely it's like the relationships and that level of intimacy was achieved not by us but by yi chen and media who built these relationships with these with these chinese folks while we were simultaneously trying to build the same kind of relationships with the american folks and you know and then as we went on we realized this is going to be a film with multiple points of view, yeah, it's going to be Chinese perspective and American perspective.
0: It's the beautiful, rich complexity of the film having both of these cultures represented in this fashion. It made me, you know, ecstatic to know that we were going to get both points of views, and um, it's really what makes American Factory the film that it is. Well, thank you. Let's fast forward now to to February, and uh, you know what I'm going to ask you. There's no way I can can't not ask this, but I'm hopeful that that you'll answer this really truly from the perspective of you know, what does it feel like as a documentary filmmaker, right? What does it feel like to be recognized on such a stage as something like the Academy Awards? So if you wouldn't mind, Stephen, can you walk us through, literally walk us through the moment when it's announced that that American Factory has won Best Documentary? What are some of the first thoughts that you have as you walk up?
1: Well, funny enough, it's sort of an overwhelming moment, and there's a practicality to it that kicks in that suppresses your ability to appreciate the moment. Because, on a practical level, you have to stand up and then you have to step into the aisle. And then, you know, I put out my arm, and Julia loops her arm through. Her left arm through my right arm, and then with her right arm, she has to bundle up her dress so she literally does not fall down. And then we have to step one step, two step, and you know, it, I'm trying to sort of re um, replay that moment. It's like you go into a mode of practical uh, necessity of what you have to do now. Because you've got to get on that stage and say your say your fleeting remarks, you know. Um, so, uh, it, I mean, it's an overwhelming moment, and I, it really didn't hit me till we, we got backstage and and, and that because then because then you know like we didn't fo- trying not to fall down literally trying not to fall down on the way up to the stage and then trying to finish our speech before the music swelled. Was our sole job, mission, purpose in that moment, you know? And then any kind of appreciation of the moment, or gratitude, or um, reckoning of what that meant would come later, you know. On a very, and I'm not kidding. It's just you realize you have to, you have to do that. But as soon as we got backstage, I felt like this huge, huge wave of gratitude. I couldn't, it's hard to put in the words, but, um,
0: talk talk about that. Share that gratitude with us.
1: You know, Julia has been making films for 50 years and she's dedicated her life to telling stories of working people and of women and of struggles for, for folks to have a better life who are not rich or powerful or famous. And I've been making films for, you know, almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, to have, um, and we poured, we poured our hearts into American Factory. We really, it became an obsession for us that lasted years. I mean, we 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 knew it was a big story. We could feel it was a big story, and as that feeling grew, so did our sort of level of obsessive dedication and uh, constant filming and constant pouring in of the energy to try to tell that story. I mean, to the point that I had a, I had a good, uh, college teaching job, but American factory got to be so big that I had to quit that job to make the film and which was a very painful, hard decision to make. But ultimately I, I felt like I had to, um, the film had to come first in a, in a way that, um, was, I, you know, ultimately I think it was the right thing to do, although it was very disruptive and, and, and caused a lot of trouble. We just poured it on for years and years making that film. We were so exhausted, um, by the time we finished it. And, and of course Julia is, has been and is fighting cancer at the same time. I mean, that's why she had no hair there, uh, on the, uh, on the Oscar stage, right. um, cause she had just been doing chemo and, um, So, so all these factors, the years and years of making films, the hard work that this particular film had demanded of us, um, just in the shadows being backstage, you just, it just hits you. It's like, this is, um, an acknowledgement from our, our comrades in the documentary world, from our community, uh, from the larger world that this, that, that we had done a good, we had done good, you know, and, uh, I mean, it's something I'll carry with me forever, you know, that, that deep feeling of gratitude. It, it, um, yeah. And good fortune,
0: you know. Thank you for sharing that, Stephen. Now, how does this all play out moving forward? Like, how do you, how do you envision something like this? Maybe you can share, share with us how you envision this helping you to propel moving forward, uh, in, in your future doc films.
1: Well, <laughs> you know, the great fortune of winning uh, an Oscar has zero bearing or influence on whether your next film is a good idea or not. <laughs> Honestly, it's like every f- film, every damn movie is its own mountain to climb. And uh, just because just uh, we were so lucky to win an Oscar, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything in yeah. terms of like, will your next idea be good? or not, yeah, you know, yeah. it does not make, it didn't make us any smarter than we were the day before. Right. It really didn't. Uh, it, it, it will help us, it, it may help us, uh, with fundraising. I yeah. mean, the, you know, from what I've heard, it will help us with fundraising and stuff <laughs> in the future, but there's a danger in that, in that people shouldn't fund us just because, uh, we want an Oscar. They should fund us because the idea is good. Yeah. And so in a way you could say it's going to make it more dangerous for us because if, if we're talking about an idea with, with potential, you know, the potential funders out there, we have to make sure that they're not just getting behind it because, uh, cause the, the little gold statue, you know? Um, so I don't know, I just think I just think you got to earn every movie and and you earn the movies by showing up, you know, by going to film with people every day for months if not years and to to be worthy of their trust and to try to constantly question what you're doing and question is this the heart of the story or what am I missing? Uh, you know, I, I feel like there's, when you get in the zone of making a film, it's like a fever overtakes you where it's all you can think about yeah. is like, what am I missing right now? Yeah. What should I be filming right now? What question should I ask right now? What question should I not ask right now? Uh, what, what, where should I stand? Where's the light? Where's the, what, what have I forgotten what am I forgetting to, to, to do or say or who who's about to speak and what what camera angle should I be on that fever that overtakes you that all becomes an all-consuming thing that doesn't let you sleep at night that is what it, you need to make a film it, you don't you know you don't need these big awards even though they're incredibly wonderful uh, what you need is this 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 sort of madness, Uh, that will keep you um, hungry to find the story.
0: I have had the distinct honor and pleasure of speaking with Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Stephen Bognar. Stephen, what have we missed in this conversation? What is something, whether it be in your background, whether it be filming uh, in Ohio, whether it be winning an Academy Award, what is something that you can leave our doc filmmakers with
1: one small practical thing, I don't know if this will be valuable or not, but if, if you're in the early stage of filming with, with a person or a story or a situation, and I'm talking, I guess this is more like verite filming, it's really important to spend time filming the mundane stuff hmm. that you think won't really be part of the story And that's stuff like um, a person driving to go get groceries or washing the dishes or just writing at a computer or writing in a notebook or doing stuff that doesn't even seem particularly significant to the story. But getting that kind of footage early on and filming with friends and family who, who may seem very tangential to the story at this time, but who later could become really important You know, you can't predict what's going to happen oftentimes in a story. Most of the time you can't predict. But for your editing later, that kind of mundane footage or everyday footage or that kind of like your main person with with their cousin or their neighbor or their sister or their mom can bear fruit. Later, Because mom could become a major character later or sister or neighbor could become a major character later in ways that it's impossible to predict now. And so I I feel like if you're committing to a story early on, it's really important to just spend a few extra days or weeks filming this this routine life because it gives you uh, footage for a point A in what will be a long narrative, you know. A long and unpredictable story.
0: Stephen, I can't thank you enough for taking this hour out and uh, and spending this time with us here in the documentary life. Ah,
1: Chris, thanks for having me, and thanks for you know seriously, thank you for doing this podcast and sharing all these all this uh, good advice with everybody.
0: Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.